This program is supported by an educational grant from Sun Pharma Canada, Inc., made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalogs, Season 2. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. I'm a dermatologist who works in Halifax, part-time community, part-time academic. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from dermatologists outside your centre. This podcast is designed to change some of that. The goal of the series is to help you, the dermatology resident, get answers from expert dermatologists across the country to some of your burning questions on key areas of our practice. The expert that's joining me today is Dr. Marissa Joseph. She's a pediatrician and dermatologist at the University of Toronto and the director of the Ricky Schachter Dermatology Centre at Women's College Hospital. Welcome, Marissa. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. And, you know, I, I always think about when I first... Um, have met some of the people that I interview on the podcast. And we have to go way back uh, to when we were both attending medical school here in Halifax at Dalhousie. So I, I'm still at the alma mater. That's right. You've uh, relocated. I'm an East Coaster. You're an East Coaster in Toronto. You know, today, one of the topics that many of the residents have really wanted to cover is uh, neonatal skin exam, neonatal dermatology. And so um, I thought this would be something that we could chat about today, where you are a pediatric dermatologist, dermatologist and pediatric dermatologist, and you can really help us out with some of this, because I know, at least for myself, um, sometimes this is an area that is very fear-inducing on call, when I am called to the NICU or uh, to see a new um, baby that may have something. So uh, can you, what I'm thinking about first is maybe tell me a little bit about your general approach to the neonatal skin exam. Um, how is it different than other skin exams? And what are some of the more common things that uh, we're called about as dermatologists? Oh, for sure. I think um, one of the things we have to remember with neonates is that they, and neonates typically are defined as under one month of age. So they're tiny mm -hmm. and they're vulnerable and um, their skin is much more uh, vulnerable to mechanical trauma, infection, all of those things. And then obviously the morbidity associated with that can be more severe. So you, you tend to have to um, be mindful about what the complications are and maybe treat empirically or consider diagnoses that are even maybe rare because you don't want to miss them. Mm -hmm. So having said that though, the majority of neonates are actually just fine. Um, and there's lots of things that they can, that can happen to their skin and, you know, parents will be concerned and, and be bringing things up. And I think just as important as recognizing the, the serious things that can happen to a neonate, you really have to be familiar with the common benign things. So you can reassure parents, you can reassure the referring provider. So my approach is often um, looking at the baby in general, um, a history of whether this is acute, whether the baby is well, whether the baby is behaving the way that the baby was behaving before. Are there other concerns outside the skin? And then if this is an otherwise healthy baby, um, looking at um, whether the the presenting complaint uh, falls into the category of benign things that you can see. So are they bumps, right? So thinking about Epstein pearls or milia, are they um, eruptions that seem to be um, resolving by the time they see you? So transient neonatal um, pustulosis or erythema toxicum or miliaria. So um, being 
thoughtful about some of these quite diffuse eruptions that can um, present in the neonatal period um, and putting them into different categories. So that, again, goes back to your morphology. Are they pustular? Mm -hmm. Is it uh, more erythematous? And again, in the whole context of whether the baby is well or not. Um, then when we're thinking about diffuse eruptions, we have to think about broader categories such as, is it infectious mm -hmm. or could this be um, some inflammatory condition that might be related to something that mom may have had in, in, in the neonatal period or sorry, in the antenatal period. Yeah. And then whether this could be genetic. So thinking in those broad categories, again, you still have to go back to your history um, and mom's history. Does mom have a history of an autoimmune condition? Um, was the pregnancy normal? Uh, it, what's baby's size throughout the pregnancy? Were there any concerns that were followed? Um, and then try to take the morphology and put it into different categories. So the blistering, the papillosquamous, the atrophic, and there, there are just such a large number of conditions that can present in the neonatal period. It's hard to have a one size fits all. So I do think you, you, you end up having to think about whether baby is well, and then put your your skin presentation in a particular category right. and then go from there. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I think you're right. There are a lot of things that present in the neonatal period. And I think a lot of that um, slips my brain, at least. Thinking about the history portion, and I, and I guess you kind of uh, touched on this, and I could see that it would depend on the clinical presentation. But I was going to ask, you know, how much... Um, how detailed do you get into the history of the pregnancy? But I suppose that would really depend a lot on how the what the patient was presenting with or the baby was presenting with. Yeah, it it does. I think um, my bias is that I trained in pediatrics before dermatology, so um, the history can be brief, but it's quite complete. Mm -hmm. So did the mom have appropriate antenatal care? Because then that will help you determine she probably had HIV testing, she probably had, you know, VDRL and syphilis sort of workup. Mm -hmm. But if they didn't, you start to think about it, you know, maybe a, a different line and in terms of exposures um, for the baby antenatally. Um, but in general, you want to know, did they have ultrasounds? Were there any abnormalities? Did the family have to be followed specially throughout the pregnancy? Mm -hmm. Even those general questions might start to uh, bring out things. Um, family history is very important. I remember seeing a baby who presented with blistering and we were thinking all sorts of different things. And then just a simple question, does anyone in the, did anyone in the family have something like this? And it turned out that uh, one of the the parents did, and um, the parent had a diagnosis, like ah. uh, had <laughs> congenital ichthyosiform erythroderma. Dad was not present at the, you know, at the um, at the consultation, but you know, a history is worth a thousand words. Just knowing to to ask the right questions. So I think a good general pregnancy history is particularly important for the neonate. Maybe not for a five year old, but certainly for the neonate. Right. Right. And, and also, I guess, uh, with respect to thinking about genetic things in family history, um, do you tend to keep it that general sort of, does anyone else in the family have this? Or at what kind of triggers you to say, hmm, maybe we need to actually get a little bit more formal and start drawing those circles and squares? Yeah. Um, so uh, I tend to do a bit of both okay. um, because it's like... Um, you, you, Sometimes people interpret questions differently. So if you say, do you dye your hair? No. 
but I highlight my hair. So <laughs> I think sort of being open-ended. So I will say things like, does anyone have something specific? But then I will ask questions like, anyone present with blistering? Anyone have to have genetic testing? Right. Um, and then, you know, in the setting of specific diagnoses, have you ever heard this long name before? Um, in terms of getting into... Um, detailed family histories and that sort of thing. If I'm really concerned about genetics, um, then I probably would get a genetics consultation. I'm going down that line. And I'm lucky that I'm in a, you know, in a center where I can access that. But I would say that anybody across the country probably could access right. that if, if they had a concern. Yeah. So I want to delve into a little bit more specific presentations and then maybe uh, loop back around to some general things that would apply to all neonates. But um, probably the thing that, that keeps me up at night is when I'm called about the blistering neonate. And, and one of the residents did specifically say, you know, what's your approach to blisters in the neonate? And do you have sort of a practical approach about how you see them and, and manage them empirically before you get an answer? Yeah, that's a great question. It's probably one of the more common um, sort of referrals that you are going to get in the middle of the night that that's going to keep you up. I think going back to the fact that these are very young um, children and vulnerable and remembering that some of the clinical features of a lot of the conditions that can result in blistering in the neonatal period um, overlap. Mm -hmm. So you really can't tell the difference necessarily just by looking at them morphologically and, and they're going to have to have a workup. But then you're sort of mindful of this is a very young child and you don't want to introduce complications from certain workup and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. But also recognizing that even from an infectious point of view, neonates don't always have a fever. Right. So you can't even hang your hat on that. They might have a lower temperature. So I think you still have to stay quite broad. So in general, again, for the residents, it's always a history and a physical, you know, um, a common things that are important on history is the presence of cold sores right. in a parent, yep. uh, exposure to varicella, um, those sorts of things, and an antenatal history. And then in general, um, for a baby young with blisters, even though there's a wide differential, I think we always think about infectious first. Right. And often the morphology is quite unusual in this age group. So you're not always going to get the classic grouped vesicles on an erythematous base. I've seen slate gray papules, slightly erythematous, and we do a zinc smear and a PCR and it comes back as herpes. Right. So I think um, being mindful that the morphology may be a slightly atypical in, in this age group is important too. So, um, so in terms of approach, uh, investigative approach, always thinking about infectious, but also co-infections. I think fungal infections are much less common. Right. So practically speaking, I don't do a lot of KOH in, in culture, um, but almost always will swab bacterial swabs and also a zinc smear or a PCR or um, whatever your institution does in terms of evaluating um, for viral studies. Um, and because these babies are young, they often will get a blood culture. So a lot of this stuff Disposition is important. Mm -hmm. If this is a very young baby, this is probably stuff that needs to be done while baby's in hospital mm -hmm. because of the concern about decompensating. Now, as those cultures are coming back, usually you would cover empirically with an antiviral or, a, you know, anti 
um, biotic. Um, and that would take maybe two or three days. And you don't always want to do that, but um, in an older child, but in this case, until you have your results back, um, that's probably the safest thing. Having said that, um, looking at the morphology, if they're frank blisters and you're thinking about genetic things like epidermolysis bullosa or uh, mastocytosis, these are probably more the more common things that I would see in my practice, um, then you definitely need a skin biopsy. Right. But you have to be thinking about what you think may be going on. Because if this is epidermolysis bullosa or ichthyosis, then just doing a regular H and E is not going to be enough. Mm -hmm. You probably do need to take some tissue for fibroblast culture or special tissue culture. So you can do some electron microscopy or genetic um, testing or immunofluorescence testing. Um, but that would be the next step. So infectious swabs, um, looking at babies supporting that way, impaired coverage um, with antimicrobial um, medications and then um, skin biopsy and um, and then on top of that if there's other dysmorphic features etc um, and you're you're leaning towards some other sort of genetic diagnosis well then you would add on additional things okay. right so I guess just to come back to a couple of the things that you said so let's say you know baby has clear fluid blisters, you're not 100% sure if you're in the immunobolus sort of mastocytosis category versus infection. Um, it sounds like your, your general tendency would be covered with an antiviral um, because you kind of don't want to miss that, I guess. And, and I guess on balance yeah. for the residents and for myself, I always think about it as, you know, what's the risk of a couple of days of acyclovir? And it's relatively low, low risk, especially with normal kidneys. So I kind of think yeah. about it as, okay, well, it's more of a safety net. I guess one of the questions I have is, would there be clinical clues that may, you know, where you would add in an antimicrobial or antibiotic? Would that be, I mean, obviously, if you saw Frank Poss or Cloudy things, or you had something on the history that the mom had, you know, um, I can't think of what it is now that they swab for. <laughs> Uh, oh, GBS. Yes, thank you. Yes, <laughs> GPS. you got it. Um, would that be that trigger point to say, okay, let's also add in some, um, you know, an antibiotic at the same time? Absolutely. I think, you know, and that's why it's hard to have a one size fits all. But for sure, if you have it, something in the history that makes you think that there might be bacterial issues and or, if the, I mean, even if the neonate has a fever, right. then you're sort of more likely sort of thinking that. Whereas we have other contexts where, you know, I the last patient that I saw with blisters that I was very concerned about EB, it was it was epidermolysis bullosa. That was quite clear. This is a baby who's born who's got sloughing. Yeah. You know, and um and sloughing with some of the in, interventions that the neonatologist was trying to do. So um, that child, I think, was covered with antibiotics, but that's because that's kind of what happens in the NICU, not as part of the, the necessary follow-up. But I would tend to agree with you that in a baby where you're not quite sure and you've got investigations pending, the the risk of a couple of days of, a, of an antiviral is probably as minimal compared to the risk of not having treated a disseminated uh, herpes infection. Right. Yes, that whole balancing act. 
The other thing you brought up, um, which I do want to delve into a little bit, is the concept of biopsying a neonate. And um, so I think one of the questions is, if you're thinking about some of these things that would require more than one biopsy, would you typically do that right at the outset? So if you're going to go through the biopsy process, would you tend to do a couple at one time? And then beyond that, you know, I remember doing the very first biopsy I did on a one day year old, and I think um, it probably made my palms really sweaty and it traumatized (laughs) me far more than that child who, of course, is never going to remember any of that. It probably traumatized the parents. But do you have any special tips and tricks around that biopsy procedure of the teensy, tiny, vulnerable baby? Yeah, it's it's tough. I think it's also remembering that they do experience pain, Mm -hmm. you know, because I think you know, a million years ago, people just used to do stuff to babies because they couldn't express themselves. But there's very good evidence that they experience pain in a very real way. Um, so the approach is the same in that sense. Um, for those tiny babies, sugar makes them happy or a little bit of something. So usually the loving nurse who's looking after them knows what they like. Right. And you want to do it in a at a time where the baby is settled. And, um, and then the same sort of things you're going to use uh, you're going to be mindful with the needle in terms of freezing but you're going to use freezing mm-hmm. um, you're going to inject slowly so you don't distend the tissue so quickly um, and then you're going to minimize the number of pokes that for that for that baby and um, some of these babies sometimes might be on medicate pain medication for whatever reason right. if it's a complex child and you might want to time the biopsy to the time where the child is getting that medication. There's things that you can do there. And then usually what I would do is I either do very two very small um, punch biopsies um, in the same area where I've anesthetized or maybe do like a four millimeter and cut it into two. Okay. Um, But be mindful for the electron microscopy that you don't want to smush that specimen too much. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's the same sort of principles, but there are so little and usually they're you know, having um, maybe even some medication like Tylenol afterwards for the nurse to give it as well can be helpful. So just being mindful of their comfort. And what about the idea? I remember when my kids were little and they'd be getting vaccinations or whatever, and the doctor would often, you know, we they'd have a little bit of something with sugar, or I'd I'd breastfeed them at the same time. Um, yeah. Do you? I guess it's a personal preference for whether the mom would be comfortable with that, or if baby would baby would be held by a by a caregiver. Do you think that that makes it any easier for biopsy? I mean, I guess you want to keep things clean and sterile, but um, do you ever have like a a care provider holding the baby for the biopsy? Um, Referral bias, often when I'm doing biopsies in a neonated sick kids, these are not kids where practically Mm -hmm. they're, you know, they've got IV in or they're in an isolate or that sort of thing. So that makes it a bit more challenging. But I think if you if you had the ability to do that, that would be great. Um, but you do need a controlled setting. I would also say that, um, and this I'm thinking of my own, you know, as parents, you, you think about your own experience, but having a neonate who's being medicalized mm-hmm. and having a biopsy is particularly traumatic especially for a sleep deprived parent. Um, And so you do wonder about them watching that occurring um, and the stress on that. But I, you know, I think it's just every situation is different and I'm sure they're, they're that, that would be a nice thing if it were possible and it were um, sane and okay for the parents. 
here. I also do remember as a, I think I was maybe a med student at the time, a, a kid, an older kid needed blood work, but it was too traumatizing for the mom to watch. So my job as the clerk was to basically hold the child in a, you know, yeah. I don't want to say headlock because that sounds wrong, but yeah. I was holding the, the kid bear hug. And, bear hug and mom <laughs> left and kid was really freaking out. So that wasn't, that wasn't great either. But um, yeah, I, I, I take that point. And I do think that your point of making sure that you anesthetize the baby um, is really important because I think even, you know, thinking back to books that I read as a resident, it would say, you know, that concept of, oh, you don't need freezing or just sugar. And it, and it seems yeah. like, you know, maybe some people still have that notion, but um, of course we certainly would use local anesthetic. Um, okay. So blistering, we could probably talk about all of the management of the different blistering conditions forever, but in the interest of talking about some other topics the residents wanted to know about, let's take a question from a dermatology resident. the world headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. Hi, Dermalogs. This is Ilya Mukovozo from the University of British Columbia. My question is, what clinical signs in a neonate presenting with severe atopic dermatitis would prompt you to consider underlying disorders like hyper IgE syndrome and severe combined immunodeficiency? Thanks. The first thing that pops into my head is you don't really get, and again, me being a bit strict with the definition of a neonate, you don't get a lot of neonates presenting with severe atopic dermatitis. That's like true. Like a it's, 20 day old or a three day old. It's too or, early. <laughs> it's too early. And so by definition, um, and we do see these babies, I'm just thinking of one right now who present that early and with just terrible refractory eczema, you start thinking about it right from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, because the majority of kids will start to present, you know, two months old, six months old, eight months old and beyond. Um, when they're presenting that early and it's severe, you do start to wonder about, I don't know, hyper IgE, doc ape, whatever. And, and so initially you treat those babies as eczema and it's challenging too because of their body surface area you worry about absorption mm -hmm. um topical corticosteroids etc and then the parents you know steroid phobia and you know when the child is 12 oh, yeah. is an issue you imagine <laughs> in a three days yes, yes yeah mm. so um so but i think in general the previous principles apply so a good history mm -hmm. and physical um the clinical signs that would make you worried about this baby is size mm -hmm. um so if you have a kid who's on the third percentile or lower and of course you have to look at the size of the family as well too but a baby's not feeding and growing the way we expect them to um certainly a baby that's had antibiotics in that time mm -hmm. period you start wondering about you know are you susceptible to infection because you're genetically susceptible or is it just as your skin barriers is so denuded. Right. Um, but babies like that are going to get a workup mm -hmm. um, and um, immunoglobulins and um, possibly um, like I will tend to do a, a, a brief um, immune workup because I, I don't like to take tons of blood from these mm -hmm. little kids. I want someone who's really well versed in what they're looking for right. to, to do an appropriate assessment. But initially, I will do things like immunoglobulins and um, just to see hyper IG. Right. Um, and, um, and then a referral, yeah. if you can, yeah. uh, to immunology. But I think if a baby 
to, to end that point, I guess, is a baby's presenting that early with severe, I think you think about it right off to bat. Okay. So yeah, so, so that is the clue. <laughs> the severe yeah, early presentation is the, is the clue, not that is, there's is the clue. additional clues that are required. Yeah. I guess I'm thinking along those lines, and this isn't a question the residents had. This is a question that I have, and I'm sure some other people have it too. So what I was thinking about was, you know, sometimes you do get called to see a baby with respect to, to a diaper rash. Um, and so when you're seeing what makes you think about either just sort of classic baby diaper rash versus maybe a reticulo or sorry, a, a histiocytosis um, versus mm-hmm. maybe an acrodermatitis enteropathica, would, would there be some clinical clues uh, when you're looking at that? Because, you know, it's sort of red scaly inguinal folds um, right. or yeah. So how do you how do you approach that? So. The diaper dermatitis that we typically see will be erosive, mm-hmm. um, especially if it's Jackay's sort of diaper dermatitis and it's evolved. And history is important because the parents will be using almost no barrier protection at all, um, and it's sort of progressed. So the and the presence of satellite lesions and that sort of thing mm-hmm. helps you sort of put it in the regular, even though it's really bad in the regular category. I think acrodermatitis enteropathica is a bit clearer because it's so psoriasiform. Okay. Um, so that perineal uh, involvement often has this um, annular sort of psoriasiform, well-defined look um, without any um, satellite lesions to speak of. And it often will have some periods of erosion throughout it, mm-hmm. but it, it tends to be much more psoriasiform. The other thing is um, that children will often have the perioral right. sort of um, horseshoe sort of involvement as well too. So I'm just thinking of the last couple that I saw that were quite classic. I remember seeing one that had some diaper involvement, but also had a psoriasiform almost id huh. sort of all over the body as well too. Um, and so that, of course, uh, you start thinking, I think the child was referred as psoriasis, but, um, and I guess that's on the differential too, but um, that, I think for AE is particularly helpful. Mm-hmm. The morphology mm-hmm. is helpful. I think it is a little bit um, different than just the regular um, baby diaper dermatitis. Langerhans cell histiocytosis is a bit of a different beast because the um, ref- referral bias, I've been surprised and seen it present in different ways. I think the accentuation in the folds is helpful. Okay. I think more of a hemorrhagic sort of erosion to okay. it is helpful as well too. Um, other locations, maybe like behind the mm-hmm. ear, et cetera, but it can just be right in the diaper area. The other thing is well, some of these diagnoses, I think acrodermatitis enteropathica has probably made the, that diagnosis is probably made the first time we see the patient. Right. But the diaper dermatitis that comes in, you tell them to frost it like a cake, it should get better if they're doing what they say you're supposed to do. So close follow-up is important. So you see them seven to 14 days later, and it's no better. So then you start, often we'll have to start thinking about other things. And for things like LCH and um, AE, ultimately you're going to do a a biopsy. but uh, the other thing with LCH is going back to history and physical, sometimes these kids are not well. Right. Um, I, I would say that dermatologists may not appreciate hepatosplenomegaly in a um, 
you know, in a neonate um, or might not examine for that. But you're, if you're looking at a baby with a pretty swollen belly, mm. right, you're looking for those types of clues as well, too. Pallor as well yes. uh, might yeah. go along with that. Um, unfortunately, that signals a sicker baby. Um, but, um, but those are things that obviously wouldn't go along with a diaper dermatitis. Right. Yeah. So that whole, I, I guess that's sort of a practical tip, you know, treat it. If it's not improving and you see them back, then you have to reassess your diagnosis. For your general treatment, um, and this is because of something I, I think I heard of the Atlantic Derm where they were advocating for just that whole concept of frequent diaper changes. And like you said, using a zinc um, paste or barrier, frosting it, but actually not requiring any anti-inflammatory or topical steroid. Would that be, do you tend to use much in the way of topical steroids? Nope. nope just straight nope. up like basic principles. Basic principles and all of the kids that are referred to me already are using steroid creams. Right. Um, and um, they, they all get hydrocortisone 1% um, from someone. Um, and then usually it's just basic principles. It's not commonly that I actually have to use a prescription. Sometimes I do have to use um, an anti yeast sort of cream yeah. because there's a lot of stuff going on there. But for the most part, it's just good barrier protection and a good. Um, test is when the mom comes in, like I tell them before they go, even when you come next time, it needs to be covered all the time. And so when they come back and then there's like nothing on it except calendula oil, I know exactly what they've been doing <laughs> for the week um, since they saw yeah. me. And do you get much resistance for you know, I I tend to see this more in the babies that are using maybe cloth diapers. And so I, I try to convince them to do frequent diaper change or switch to disposables at least for a period of time until things are dry and settled. Um, occasionally coming across quite a bit of pushback. Do you have any tips around that interesting discussion? I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> I, um, I'm smiling a bit. Tips? Am I that successful? I don't know. Um, I think it's like anything else. You you present the options. It's you know, twenty twenty is a weird time to practice medicine mm, in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that I often say to the moms, your child's this is uncomfortable. Yeah. Like this is a really uncomfortable situation. Imagine if you had sores in your bottom. And so it's sometimes we have to make difficult choices or choices that aren't aligned with what we typically would do, but it's okay. And so the disposable, let's just do it for a period of time. And then when it heals and it should heal, if we do the right things, then we can go back to what you were doing before. Um, I find the pain conversation Mm -hmm. usually trips um, the parents that, where they sort of, yeah. cause they haven't really thought about the fact that, Oh, my baby's in pain. Do, does the baby cry when you change it? Yes. Yeah. They cry. So they're in pain. And so, you know, most parents will do anything to, to stop that. Mm-hmm. And, and do you have a preferred barrier or do you just say that sort of thick zinc oxide paste or plain, plain Vaseline or what do you like as that sort of coating? Thick, thick, um, zinc oxide paste. So it ha- I say it's white and it should be annoying to get off your finger. And then, you know, I give them a couple names. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Vaseline, I love as an emollient. 
Um, so we'd still talk about Vaseline at every visit for the baby, but not for the diaper okay. area. I find by the time they get to me with a diaper rash, uh, Vaseline's not things are bad. Yeah, yeah, things are bad. Yeah. Okay. Um, so one of the other things that the residents had, just again to shift gears again, um, the residents did have this question. Hi, Dermalogues. This is Abdullah Dijafri from McGill University. My question is, sometimes neonatal cases require special tests, such as IMF and genetics. If the hospital doesn't have access to these resources, how do we figure out how to access these tests outside of the hospital? What are your tips for advocating for the patient? So there's two parts to that. Um, the testing that one would want to get as a dermatologist is usually um, done in the United States. Mm -hmm. So there are genetic labs that, you know, for example, like Gene DX or whatever, mm -hmm. where you can, um, and you can contact them directly if you know what you're thinking about, and you can send them your specimens directly. I think that approach is problematic, though, because, um, Number one, someone needs to pay for the test. Mm -hmm. These tests are thousands of dollars and the funding structure for paying for a lot of those tests either come from the institutional budget or um, the person pays personally. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and these tests are cost prohibitive in terms of their, the amount of costs. So um, the advocacy piece tying back into that question is um, contacting um someone in your hospital to advocate that this test is clinically necessary and is going to matter in the management of this particular child. And so that should come out of the budget. That's a tough conversation, I think, for a dermatologist to have who isn't normally having those sorts of conversations as number one. Number two, once you get a genetic test back, the parents are going to have lots of questions about said test. And you, at least I am not equipped to answer them. And I would hazard a guess that the average dermatologist is not either. So that's all to say, I do think you need a genetics, you know, unless that's your area of expertise, you do need genetics consultation. And that takes a lot of that off of your plate mm -hmm. because a geneticist is going to know where to send the test. They're going to know exactly what to order. They're going to know the processes to get this test covered yeah. um, by whether it's the institution, et cetera. And then practically speaking, um, you if you if even if you don't have genetics in your center, in your city, just contact a major center. They Most of them have telehealth set up yes. um, because they're, you know, the, it's hard. There isn't a geneticist or a genetics metabolics program on every street corner. So mm -hmm. um, they, they have... Um, the infrastructure set up, even pre-COVID, I think, yes. to see people remotely yeah. and then um, access um, local resources to make that happen for the patient. So that's a long-winded way of seeing the best way, I think, to advocate for your patient who you think has a genetic skin um, disorder is to refer to genetics. And you should be able to access that um, even in another city. So what I was thinking maybe we could do now would just be to talk about a few um, more specific things, like more specific diagnoses and what your management approach would be. Um, sure. And so, you know, back to when we were first talking about some of the relatively common things. Um, so we did talk about the diaper stuff, but what about those, you know, transient neonatal uh, pustulosis, um, the, the neonatal acne, the erythema toxicum? 
Um, all of these things are self-limited, but what type of advice do you give to the parents or to the care providers that, you know, this is how long I expect this to last. And, you know, there's what you do in the meantime. Yeah. Um, so the transient neonatal rashes um, in general, I tell people they can last up to four to six weeks. Um, I do that so that they don't call me too soon. Um, and also because although you read the textbook answers of things supposed, supposedly should have resolved by the end of the neonatal period, um, I often find, and maybe again it's a referral bias, um, that it can last a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, I also will counsel around these, these eruptions should not bother baby. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a big thing because you might have the emergence of eczema and eczema and, you know, in a lighter skin patient is also red and blotchy. Right. And so how do you tell the difference between all these different things that are happening? So part of the counseling is that this, this eruption should not make baby act differently, should not baby make baby feel uncomfortable and baby shouldn't act sick. So if those things happen, that's a reason to call sooner or that there's something different going on. I think that's also important because a lot of these things for me are clinical diagnoses. Mm -hmm. um, so in a characteristic pattern, like for example, transient neonatal um, pastoral melanosis should happen, you know, not that long after baby enters the world, leaves little marks behind. And so it's, it's classic and I don't think I've ever biopsied it. Um, so in that setting, the fact that it's a clinical diagnosis, you do want to give the parents the tools to be able to recognize that this is different than what you expect. Um, but that's generally what I do. And I almost always see them in follow-up. Okay. Um, I usually will see them at six to eight weeks to make sure that things are okay. Now, the one exception to that would probably be um, infantile acne. Mm or neonatal acne, I should say, um, because they're all referred as acne and it is neonatal cephalic um, pustulosis. Right. And um, and they may or may not have a bunch of cradle cap with it as well too. So for those parents, I will talk about the fact that it is due to a yeast. I will talk about the fact that it's not hormones. Mm -hmm. it, it does affect moms in particular because they think there's something in their breast milk that's causing it. Um, so a lot of reassurance around that. And then um, some Sometimes I will treat with an anti-yeast, um, depending on how inflammatory and how um, involved it is. In darker skin patients, I will also treat because there's a lot of uh, pigmentary changes right. that will happen yeah. um, in the baby as well. So I was thinking about one of the other things that we often get called about, or not often, but, you know, occasionally do get called about in darker skinned individuals, so more dermal melanocytosis. But I know that I've been called at times when it's been in a more atypical location. And then there's a question about, you know, could there be child abuse or other changes? And I mean, mm. to, to the dermatology eye, it's very clearly not. But um, have you had, do you get called much about that? Or is that more just, you know, me? <laughs> It's interesting. Um, so uh, that's the one diagnosis that in certain families, they just accept it because right. everybody's had yeah. it. And so, you know, it's not something, in fact, like you, I'll bring it up that if you're concerned, they're like, oh, no, no, those are just, you know. <laughs> um, but, um, but we do get um, some referrals where the parents are more motivated about the aesthetic part of right. it. And so they want to know, is there something we should be doing now versus later? Right. Um, there, not to add fuel to the fire, but there's 
for people who have extensive dermal melanocytosis, um, it has been associated with some metabolic conditions. So I might make a note back to the referring doctor saying, I have no concerns about that. I certainly have never seen it, mm. but it's been reported in the literature, like Hunter's or Hurler's syndrome sort of thing. Okay. But obviously those children would have other Changes. associated features right. that would support that. Um, uh, it's. I don't think I've ever been asked by a parent about worrying about secondary malignancy. Okay. Um, and so that's not part of my counseling because I think if you bring it up, they start thinking about it. But um, but that's not something that I'm usually asked about. Okay. And I think that's exceedingly rare. So that's all to say, I think um, in general, I just give them reassurance mm -hmm. and say that when it's patchy on certain areas of the body, um, those will probably fade and the ones on the buttocks tend to persist. Right. Now, as far as the child abuse goes, um, I have seen that. Mm -hmm. I even had that personally. Um, my son had it sort of extensively wow. and we, he had a shirt off and um, the swim teacher made a comment that one of the parents made a comment about being concerned. Oh. And, um, and um, so it was an interesting sort of thing, but they, she knew I was a pediatrician and I said, no, they're birthmarks, don't worry about yeah. it. And that was at the end of that, but um, it's sort of interesting. But I think it's something you have to be familiar with yes. because well-meaning strangers um, <laughs> may make a comment yes. and um, parents um, might um, be subject to that. But I think in a, in a clinical setting, that would be so straightforward to address. Right. Yeah. And I, I think the time, I remember one time we were called about it, it was there were a couple of um, around the ankle and the physician that was assessing the child wasn't used to seeing that. And then when we did a full skin exam and said, well, look, they're here too. They said, oh yeah, we see those all the time. And then, um, then we're able right. to kind of, okay, that's the same entity. Um, yeah. Thinking about the things that are pigmented and do uh, increase chance of malignancies, I just want to take a couple minutes to talk about the giant congenital nevi or how you, you know, if you don't know that's coming and the baby is born, you know, how do you kind of how do you approach that with the parents? How do you talk about, you know, most of these kids are, or I think all of these kids are going to get an MRI and just how do you lay that out? Because I think that's a very challenging conversation to have. Yeah, I think it's challenging in a few fronts. I think in pediatric dermatology, there's all often the medical side mm -hmm. um, where, you know, parents are abjectly worried about their child and what their outcome will be in the association, et cetera. But there's also the aesthetic. Absolutely. Depending on, on where it is and the psychosocial sort of effects of that mm -hmm. and and so forth. And so the those two conversations are often wrapped up together. Yeah. Um, in the context of congenital nevi um, that are not complex, often they can be tiny and the parents are just as worried and haven't slept, you know, for days. And so that's that's a fairly straightforward conversation to sort of talk about general skin surveillance and risk and probably not much of an elevated risk of malignancy over their baseline risk mm -hmm. and sort of going from there. So that's straightforward. The complex cases, the ones that have it in the midline over the spine or have um, greater than two palm sizes mm -hmm. in a tiny baby, because it's hard to know what their end size is going to be. And I don't know that there's a great validated tool to, to predict that. Yeah. Um, but some people talk about the fact that the baby's two of their um, palms um, signifies that that's going to be a big one. Um, then you have to talk about the imaging and the risk of imaging um, 
whether you need sedation, et cetera, um, then follow up. Um, and so these babies are going to be followed. So that's a pretty straightforward conversation. And sometimes I reassure them that you're going to be followed. So you're going to be looking at home, but the fact that you're going to be followed is is a good mm -hmm. thing because we're, we can look for changes over time. Um, thankfully, um, even in a pediatric dermatologist's hands, um, secondary malignancy is not that common, right? right? Yeah. Um, so, so that's good, but but we are mindful of of expressing the need for follow up and that it's important, and then and then really the aesthetic conversation, which is can be very tough because often with these larger lesions, there's not much mm. that you can do tissue expanders, etc. But you're just trading one for the other. Exactly. But very challenging conversation. And when you, if you have one of these um, babies that you start seeing, you know, how often in general, I mean, every case might be slightly different, but what would be your mm -hmm. typical follow-up period um, between assessments for the average sort of giant congenital nevus baby? Um, so early on, um, probably every three months or so, sort of similar to Melanonychia, mm -hmm. you know, sort of looking for, for changes. And then as the child gets older, in the absence as well of, you know, if you have normal MRI findings early on as well too, and the lesion has been stable in the first two years of life, um, then we would extend it. Okay. And um, that might be six months, that might be a year. And then usually um, it's yearly thereafter for the, for the larger ones. Okay. Well, so much to know and so much that I've forgotten. Um, the, the last thing that I just wanted to ask your uh, advice on on behalf of the residents would really be, do you have any favorite pediatric dermatology resources? So whether it be, you know, website, conference, textbook, um, journal, combo of all the above. I remember as a resident, I used Hurwitz and I liked yeah. it and I thought it was a great read. Um, or, or it was readable. <laughs> I shouldn't say it was a great read, you know, yeah. up all night reading her wits. Guy. It literally <laughs> was. Um, but what are your, what are some of your favorite pediatric dermatology resources? Well, I would echo that. Um, I think more and more now though, um, so the old texts are great, but often they're not, up to um, they're such, they're not up to date. So there's just a, such a large amount of time that exists between editions. So I hate to make it sound like I'm up all night reading journals every night, but <laughs> I, I think um, I think the pediatric dermatology journal is probably what I go to the most. And it, what's great is, I mean, you just search, search for pyogenic granuloma, mm. search for epidermolysis bullosa. There's going to be something there in terms of the most recent um, management type updates and there's also nice reviews right so you like i was in clinic the other day with a resident and a child presented with a hypopigmented patch and so she was trying to come up with the different things and um and we just did a quick search on google and you got this beautiful review right. of like everything yeah. pinta yas and things that you'll never see in your life and then the <laughs> more you know more common things like a nevus depigmentosis yeah. so i think um more and more now it's nice to go to the literature because there are well done right overviews, systematic reviews, um, and on whatever particular topic. But the, the old school textbooks are, are good too, but I find that helpful. And then the other thing is, 
I also think it's nice to look at resources that are geared towards parents mm -hmm. and caregivers mm -hmm. as well, too. Yeah. Um, so the Society for Pediatric Dermatology has a bunch of great handouts. Um, and that's good because it's good for practical tips. Right. Like, what are we telling parents? Because that can lend to how you form your script about um, these various diagnoses and, and what you tell parents. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think uh, is that there is an SPD meeting as well. Correct Absolutely. me if I'm wrong. And it, I know a lot yeah. of the times the residents will also attend that and, and, and glean a lot of um, clinical pearls. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I'm sure we could talk for much, much longer about uh, pediatric dermatology and neonatal stuff and everything else that I have forgotten. Um, but I am cognizant of your time. And I just wanted to say again, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, oh, thank you for having me. This was fun. It was great. And uh, the old uh, Dal, Dal alumni here. So Absolutely. Uh, thank you again. And thanks for joining us on Dermalogs. Well, thank you. My absolute pleasure. That was Dr. Marissa Joseph. She's a pediatrician and dermatologist at the University of Toronto and director of the Ricky Schachter Dermatology Center at Women's College Hospital. And that's a wrap on season two of Dermalogs. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy.